Calvin led Meg across the lawn. The shadows of the trees were long and twisted, and there was a heavy, sweet autumnal smell to the air. Meg stumbled as the land sloped suddenly downhill, but Calvin's strong hand steadied her. They walked carefully across the twins' vegetable garden, picking their way through rows of cabbages, beets, broccoli, pumpkins. Looming on their left were the tall stalks of corn. Ahead of them was a small apple orchard bounded by a stone wall, and beyond this the woods through which they had walked that afternoon. Calvin led the way to the wall and then sat there, his red hair shining silver in the moonlight, his body dappled with patterns from the tangle of branches. He reached up, pulled an apple off a gnarled limb and handed it to Meg, then picked one for himself. Tell me about your father. He's a physicist. Sure, we all know that. And he's supposed to have left your mother and gone off with some dame? Meg jerked up from the stone on which she was perched, but Calvin grabbed her by the wrist and pulled her back down. Hold it, kid. I didn't say anything you hadn't heard already, did I? No, Meg said, but continued to pull away. Let me go. Come on, calm down. You know it isn't true. I know it isn't true. And how anybody, after one look at your mother, could believe any man would leave her for another woman just shows how far jealousy will make people go, right? I guess so, Meg said. But her happiness had fled and she was back in a morass of anger and resentment. Look, dope, Calvin shook her gently. I just want to get things straight. Sort of sort out the fact from fiction. Your father's a physicist. That's a fact, yes? Yes. He's a PhD several times over? Yes. Most of the time he works alone, but some of the time he was at the Institute for Higher Learning in Princeton, correct? Yes. Then he did some work for the government, didn't he? Yes. You take it from there. That's all I know. That's about all I know, too, Meg said. Maybe Mother knows more. I don't know. What he did was, well, it was what they call classified. Top secret, you mean? That's right. And you don't even have any idea what it was about? Meg shook her head. No, not really. Just an idea because of where he was. Well, where? Out in New Mexico for a while. We were with him there. And then he was in Florida at Cape Canaveral. And we were with him there, too. And then he was going to be traveling a lot, so we came here. You'd always had this house? Yes, but we used to live in it just in the summer. And you don't know where your father was sent? No. At first we got lots of letters. Mother and father always wrote each other every day. I think mother still writes him every night. Every once in a while the postmistress makes some kind of crack about all her letters. I suppose they think she's pursuing him or something, Calvin said rather bitterly. They can't understand plain, ordinary love when they see it. Well, go on. What happened next? Nothing happened, Meg said. That's the trouble. Well, what about your father's letters? They just stopped coming. You haven't heard anything at all? No, Meg said. Nothing. Her voice was heavy with misery. Silence fell between them. 
as tangible as the dark tree shadows that fell across their laps, and that now seemed to rest upon them as heavily as though they possessed a measurable weight of their own. At last, Calvin spoke in a dry, unemotional voice, not looking at Meg. Do you think he could be dead? Again, Meg leaped up, and again, Calvin pulled her down. No, they'd have told us if he were dead. There's always a telegram or something they always tell you. What do they tell you? Meg choked down a sob and managed to speak over it. Oh, Calvin, Mother's tried and tried to find out. She's been down to Washington and everything. And all they'll say is that he's on a secret and dangerous mission. And she can be very proud of him, but he won't be able to to communicate with us for a while, and they'll give us news as soon as they have it. Meg, don't get mad. But do you think maybe they don't know? A slow tear trickled down Meg's cheek. That's what I'm afraid of. Why don't you cry? Calvin asked gently. You're just crazy about your father, aren't you? Go ahead and cry. It'll do you good. Meg's voice came out, trembling over tears. I cry much too much. I should be like, Mother, I should be able to control myself. Your mother's a completely different person, and she's a lot older than you are. I wish I were a different person, Meg said shakily. I hate myself. Calvin reached over and took off her glasses. Then he pulled a handkerchief out of his pocket and wiped her tears. This gesture of tenderness undid her completely, and she put her head down on her knees and sobbed. Calvin sat quietly beside her, every once in a while patting her head. I'm sorry, she sobbed finally. I'm terribly sorry now you'll hate me. Oh, Meg, you are a moron. Calvin said. Don't you know you're the nicest thing that's happened to me in a long time? Meg raised her head, and moonlight shone on her tear-stained face. Without the glasses, her eyes were unexpectedly beautiful. If Charles Wallace is a sport, I think I'm a biological mistake. Moonlight flashed against her braces as she spoke. Now she was waiting to be contradicted, but Calvin said, Do you know that this is the first time I've seen you without your glasses? I'm blind as a bat without them. I'm nearsighted like father. Well, you know what? You've got dream boat eyes, Calvin said. Listen, you go right on wearing your glasses. I don't think I want anybody else to see what gorgeous eyes you have. Meg smiled with pleasure. She could feel herself blushing, and she wondered if the blush would be visible in the moonlight. Okay, hold it, you two, came a voice out of the shadows. Charles Wallace stepped into the moonlight. I wasn't spying on you, he said quickly, and I hate to break things up, but this is it, kids, this is it. His voice quivered with excitement. This is what? Calvin asked. We're going. Going? Where? Meg reached out and instinctively grabbed for Calvin's hand. 
I don't know exactly, Charles Wallace said. I think it's to find father. Suddenly, two eyes seemed to spring at them out of the darkness. It was the moonlight striking on Mrs. Hu's glasses. She was standing next to Charles Wallace, and how she had managed to appear where a moment ago there had been nothing but flickering shadows in the moonlight, Meg had no idea. She heard a sound behind her and turned around. There was Mrs. Watson scrambling over the wall. My, but I wish there were no wind, Mrs. Watson said plaintively. It's so difficult with all these clothes. She wore her outfit of the night before, rubber boots and all, with the addition of one of Mrs. Buncombe's sheets which she had draped over her. As she slid off the wall, the sheet caught in a low branch and came off. The felt hat slipped over both eyes, and another branch plucked at the pink stole. Oh, dear, she sighed. I shall never learn to manage. Mrs. Hu wafted over to her, tiny feet scarcely seeming to touch the ground, the lenses of her glasses glittering. Como te piccio il fallo amoroso, Dante, what? Grievous pain a little fault doth give thee. With a claw-like hand, she pushed the hat up on Mrs. Watsit's forehead, untangled the stole from the tree, and with a deft gesture took the sheet and folded it. Oh, thank you, Mrs. Watsit said. You're so clever. Un asno viejo sabe más que un potro. Eh, Perez. An old ass knows more than a young colt. Just because you're a paltry few billion years, Mrs. Watson was starting indignantly when a sharp, strange voice cut in. All right, girls. This is no time for bickering. It's Mrs. Witch. Charles Wallace said. There was a faint gust of wind. The leaves shivered in it. The patterns of moonlight shifted. And in a circle of silver, something shimmered, quivered. And the voice said, I do not think I will materialize completely. I find it very tiring, and we have much to do. Chapter 4 The Black Thing The trees were lashed into a violent frenzy. Meg screamed and clutched at Calvin, and Mrs. Witch's authoritative voice called out, Quiet, child. Did a shadow fall across the moon? Or did the moon simply go out, extinguished as abruptly and completely as a candle? There was still the sound of leaves, a terrified, terrifying rushing. All light was gone. Darkness was complete. Suddenly the wind was gone and all sound. Meg felt that Calvin was being torn from her. When she reached for him, her fingers touched nothing. She screamed out, Charles! And whether it was to help him or for him to help her, she did not know. 
The word was flung back down her throat and she choked on it. She was completely alone. She had lost the protection of Calvin's hand. Charles was nowhere either to save or to turn to. She was alone in a fragment of nothingness. No light, no sound, no feeling. Where was her body? She tried to move in her panic, but there was nothing to move. Just as light and sound had vanished, she was gone too. The corporeal Meg simply was not. Then she felt her limbs again. Her legs and arms were tingling faintly, as though they had been asleep. She blinked her eyes rapidly. But though she herself was somehow back, nothing else was. It was not as simple as darkness or absence of light. Darkness has a tangible quality. It can be moved through and felt. In darkness, you can bark your shins. The world of things still exists around you. She was lost in a horrifying void. It was the same way with the silence. This was more than silence. A deaf person can feel vibrations. Here, there was nothing to feel. Suddenly, she was aware of her heart beating rapidly within the cage of her ribs. Had it stopped before? What had made it start again? The tingling in her arms and legs grew stronger, and suddenly she felt movement. This movement, she felt, must be the turning of the earth, rotating on its axis, traveling its elliptic course around the sun. And this feeling of moving with the earth was somewhat like the feeling of being in the ocean. Out in the ocean, beyond the rising and falling of the breakers, lying on the moving water, pulsing gently with the swells, and feeling the gentle, inexorable tug of the moon. I am asleep. I am dreaming, she thought. I am having a nightmare. I want to wake up. Let me wake up. Well, Charles Wallace's voice said, that was quite a trip. I do think you might have warned us. Light began to pulse and quiver. Meg blinked and shoved shakily at her glasses. And there was Charles Wallace standing indignantly in front of her, his hands on his hips. Meg, he shouted. Calvin, where are you? She saw Charles. She heard him, but she could not go to him. She could not shove through the strange, trembling light to meet him. Calvin's voice came as though it were pushing through a cloud. Well, just give me time, will you? I'm older than you are. Meg gasped. It wasn't that Calvin wasn't there and then that he was. It wasn't that part of him came first and then the rest of him followed, like a hand and then an arm, an eye and then a nose. It was a sort of shimmering, a looking at Calvin through water, through smoke, through fire. And then, there he was, solid and reassuring. Meg! Charles Wallace's voice came. Meg! Calvin, where's Meg? I'm right here, she tried to say, but her voice seemed to be caught at its source. Meg! Calvin cried, and he turned around, looking about wildly. Mrs. Witch, you haven't left Meg behind, have you? Charles Wallace shouted. If you've hurt Meg, any of you, Calvin started, 
But suddenly Meg felt a violent push and a shattering as though she had been thrust through a wall of glass. Oh, there you are, Charles Wallace said and rushed over to her and hugged her. But where am I? Meg asked breathlessly, relieved to hear that her voice was now coming out of her in more or less a normal way. She looked around rather wildly. They were standing in a sunlit field, and the air about them was moving with the delicious fragrance that comes only on the rarest of spring days, when the sun's touch is gentle and the apple blossoms are just beginning to unfold. She pushed her glasses up on her nose to reassure herself that what she was seeing was real. They had left the silver glint of a biting autumn evening, and now, around them, everything was golden with light. The grasses of the field were a tender new green, and scattered about were tiny, multicolored flowers. Meg turned slowly to face a mountain reaching so high into the sky that its peak was lost in a crown of puffy white clouds. From the trees at the base of the mountain came a sudden singing of birds. There was an air of such ineffable peace and joy all around her that her heart's wild thumping slowed. When shall we three meet again in thunder, lightning, or in rain? came Mrs. Who's voice. Suddenly the three of them were there, Mrs. Watsit with her pink stole askew, Mrs. Who with her spectacles gleaming, and Mrs. Witch, still little more than a shimmer. Delicate, multicolored butterflies were fluttering about them, as though in greeting. Mrs. Watsit and Mrs. Who began to giggle, and they giggled until it seemed that, whatever their private joke was, they would fall down with the wild fun of it. The shimmer seemed to be laughing, too. It became vaguely darker and more solid, and then there appeared a figure in a black robe and a black peaked hat, beady eyes, a beaked nose, and long gray hair. One bony claw clutched a broomstick. Well, just to keep you girls the strange voice said, and Mrs. Watsit and Mrs. Who fell into each other's arms in gales of laughter. If you ladies have had your fun, I think you should tell Calvin and Meg a little more about all this, Charles Wallace said coldly. You scared Meg half out of her wits, whisking her off this way without any warning. Finxerunt animae raro et... Papoca loquentis, Mrs. Who intoned. Horace, to action little, less to words inclined. Mrs. Who, I wish you'd stop quoting, Charles Wallace sounded very annoyed. Mrs. Watson adjusted her stole. But she finds it so difficult to verbalize, Charles, dear. It helps her she can quote instead of working out words of her own. And we mustn't lose our senses of humor, Mrs. Witch said. The only way to cope with something deadly serious 
is to try to treat it a little lightly. But that's going to be hard for Meg, Mrs. Watson said. It's going to be hard for her to realize that we are serious. What about me? Calvin asked. The life of your father isn't at stake, Mrs. Watson told him. What about Charles Wallace then? Mrs. Watson's unoiled door hinge voice was warm with affection and pride. Charles Wallace knows. Charles Wallace knows that it's far more than just the life of his father. Charles Wallace knows what's at stake. But remember, Mrs. Who said, a poo them panda de apisio coyote, Euripides. Nothing is hopeless. We must hope for everything. Where are we now and how did we get here? Calvin asked. Uriel, the third planet of the star Malik in the spiral nebula Messier 101. This I'm supposed to believe? Calvin asked indignantly. As you like, Mrs. Witch said coldly. For some reason, Meg felt that Mrs. Witch, despite her looks and ephemeral broomstick, was someone in whom one could put complete trust. It doesn't seem any more peculiar than anything else that's happened. Well then, someone just tell me how we got here. Calvin's voice was still angry, and his freckles seemed to stand out on his face. Even traveling at the speed of light, it would take us years and years to get here. Oh, we don't travel at the speed of anything, Mrs. Watson explained earnestly. We tesser, or you might say we wrinkle. Clear as mud, Calvin said. Tesser, Meg thought. Could that have anything to do with Mother's Tesseract? She was about to ask when Mrs. Witch started to speak, and one did not interrupt when Mrs. Witch was speaking. Mrs. Watson is young and naive. She keeps thinking she can explain things in words, Mrs. Who said. Qui plus est, French, you know. The more a man knows, the less he talks. But she has to use words for Meg and Calvin, Charles reminded Mrs. Who. If you brought them along, they have a right to know what's going on. Meg went up to Mrs. Witch. In the intensity of her question, she had forgotten all about the Tesseract. Is my father here? Mrs. Witch shook her head. Not here, Meg. Let Mrs. Watson explain. She is young, and the language of words is easier for her than it is for Mrs. Who and me. We stopped here, Mrs. Watson explained, more or less to catch our breaths and to give you a chance to know what you're up against. But what about father? Meg asked. Is he all right? For the moment, love, yes. He's one of the reasons we're here, but you see, he's only one. Well, 
Where is he? Please take me to him. We can't. Not yet, Charles said. You have to be patient, Meg. But I'm not patient, Meg cried passionately. I've never been patient. Mrs. Who's glasses shone at her gently. If you want to help your father, then you must learn patience. Vitum impendere vero. To stake one's life for the truth. That is what we must do. That is what your father is doing, Mrs. Watson nodded. Her voice, like Mrs. Who's, very serious, very solemn. Then she smiled her radiant smile. Now... Why don't you three children wander around and Charles can explain things a little? You're perfectly safe on Uriel. That's why we stopped here to rest. But aren't you coming with us? Meg asked fearfully. There was silence for a moment. Then Mrs. Witch raised her authoritative hand. Show them, she said to Mrs. Watson. And at something in her voice, Meg felt prickles of apprehension. Now? Mrs. Watts had asked, her creaky voice rising to a squeak. Whatever it was Mrs. Witch wanted them to see, it was something that made Mrs. Watts uncomfortable, too. Now, Mrs. Witch said, they may as well know. Should... Should I change? Mrs. Watson asked. Better. I hope it won't upset the children too much, Mrs. Watson murmured as though to herself. Should I change too? Mrs. Who asked. Oh, but I've had fun in these clothes. But I'll have to admit Mrs. Watson is the best at it. Das wirkt lobt dann Meister. German. The work proves the craftsman. Shall I transform now, too? Mrs. Witch shook her head. Not yet. Not here. You may wait. Now, don't be frightened, loves, Mrs. Wetsit said. Her plump little body began to shimmer, to quiver, to shift. The wild colors of her clothes became muted, whitened. The pudding bag shapes stretched, lengthened, merged. And suddenly, before the children, was a creature more beautiful than any Meg had even imagined. And the beauty lay in far more than the outward description. Outwardly, Mrs. Watsit was surely no longer a Mrs. Watsit. She was a marble white body with powerful flanks, Something like a horse, but at the same time completely unlike a horse, for from the magnificently modeled back sprang a nobly formed torso, arms, and a head resembling a man's, but a man with a perfection of dignity and virtue, an exaltation of joy such as Meg had never before seen. No, she thought, it's not like a Greek centaur, not in the least. From the shoulders, slowly, a pair of wings unfolded. Wings made of rainbows, of light upon water, of poetry. Calvin fell to his knees. No, 
Mrs. Watson said, though her voice was not Mrs. Watson's voice. Not to me, Calvin, never to me. Stand up. Carry them, Mrs. Witch commanded. With a gesture both delicate and strong, Mrs. Watson knelt in front of the children, stretching her wings wide and holding them steady but quivering. On to my back now, the new voice said. The children took hesitant steps toward the beautiful creature. But what do we call you now? Calvin asked. Oh, my dears, came the new voice, a rich voice with the warmth of a woodwind, the clarity of a trumpet, the mystery of an English horn. You can't go on changing my name each time I metamorphose, and I've had such pleasure being Mrs. Watsett. I think you'd better keep to that. She, he, it smiled at them, and the radiance of the smile was as tangible as a soft breeze, as directly warming as the rays of the sun. Come, Charles Wallace clambered up. Meg and Calvin followed him, Meg sitting between the two boys. A tremor went through the great wings, and then Mrs. Watson lifted, and they were moving through the air. Meg soon found that there was no need to cling to Charles Wallace or Calvin. The great creature's flight was serenely smooth. The boys were eagerly looking around the landscape. Look, Charles Wallace pointed. The mountains are so tall that you can't see where they end. Meg looked upwards, and indeed, the mountains seemed to be reaching into infinity. They left the fertile fields and flew across a great plateau, of granite-like rock shaped into enormous monoliths. These had a definite rhythmic form, but they were not statues. They were like nothing Meg had ever seen before, and she wondered if they had been made by wind and weather, by the formation of this earth, or if they were a creation of beings like the one on which she rode. They left the great granite plain and flew over a garden even more beautiful than anything in a dream. In it were gathered many of the creatures like the one Mrs. Watson had become, some lying among the flowers, some swimming in a broad crystal river that flowed through the garden, some flying in what Meg was sure must be a kind of dance, moving in and out above the trees. They were making music, music that came not only from their throats, but from the movement of their great wings as well. What are they singing? Meg asked excitedly. Mrs. Watson shook her beautiful head. It won't go into your words. I can't possibly transfer it to your words. Are you getting any of it, Charles? Charles Wallace sat very still on the broad back, on his face an intently listening look, the look he had when he delved into Meg or his mother. A little... Just a very little, but I think I could get more in time. Yes, you could learn it, Charles, but there isn't time. We can only stay here long enough to rest up and make a few preparations. Meg hardly listened to her. I want to know what they're saying. I want to know what it means. Try, Charles, Mrs. Watson urged. Try to translate. You can let yourself go now. You don't have to hold back. But I can't, Charles Wallace cried in an anguished voice. I don't know enough. Not yet. 
then try to work with me, and I'll see if I can't verbalize it a little for them. Charles Wallace got his look of probing, of listening. I know that look, Meg thought suddenly. Now I think I know what it means, because I've had it myself, sometimes doing math with father, when a problem is just about to come clear. Mrs. Watsett seemed to be listening to Charles's thoughts. Well, yes, that's an idea I can try. Too bad you don't really know it, so you can give it to me direct, Charles. It's so much more work this way. Don't be lazy, Charles said. Mrs. Watsett did not take offense. She explained. Oh, it's my favorite kind of work, Charles. That's why they chose me to go along, even though I'm so much younger. It's my one real talent. But it takes a tremendous amount of energy, and we're going to need every ounce of energy for what's ahead of us. But I'll try. For Calvin and Meg, I'll try. She was silent. The great wings almost stopped moving. Only a delicate stirring seemed to keep them aloft. Listen, then, Mrs. Watson said. The resonant voice rose, and the words seemed to be all around them, so that Meg felt that she could almost reach out and touch them. Sing unto the Lord a new song, and His praise from the end of the earth, ye that go down to the sea, and all that is therein, the isles and the inhabitants thereof. Let the wilderness and the cities thereof lift their voice. Let the inhabitants of the rock sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory unto the Lord. Throughout her entire body, Meg felt a pulse of joy such as she had never known before. Calvin's hand reached out. He did not clasp her hand in his. He moved his fingers so that they were barely touching hers. But joy flowed through them, back and forth between them, around them and about them and inside them. When Mrs. Watsit sighed, it seemed completely incomprehensible that through this bliss could come the faintest whisper of doubt. We must go now, children. Mrs. Watsit's voice was deep with sadness, and Meg could not understand. Raising her head, Mrs. Watsit gave a call that seemed to be a command. And one of the creatures flying above the trees nearest them raised its head to listen, and then flew off and picked three flowers from a tree growing near the river and brought them over. Each of you take one, Mrs. Watson said. I'll tell you how to use them later. As Meg took her flower, she realized that it was not a single blossom, but hundreds of tiny flowerets forming a kind of hollow bell. Where are we going? Calvin asked. Up. The wings moved steadily, swiftly. The garden was left behind. The stretch of granite, the mighty shapes, and then Mrs. Watson was flying upward, climbing steadily up, up. Below them, the trees of the mountain dwindled, became sparse, were replaced by bushes and then small dry grasses. And then vegetation ceased entirely, and there were only rocks—points and peaks of rock, sharp and dangerous. Hold on tight, Mrs. Watson said. Don't slip. Meg felt Calvin's arm circle her waist in a secure hold. 
Still, they moved upward. Now they were in clouds. They could see nothing but drifting whiteness, and the moisture clung to them and condensed in icy droplets. As Meg shivered, Calvin's grip tightened. In front of her, Charles Wallace sat quietly. Once he turned just long enough to give her a swift glance of tenderness and concern. But Meg felt as each moment passed that he was growing farther and farther away, that he was becoming less and less her adored baby brother, and more and more one with whatever kind of being, Mrs. Watson, Mrs. Who, and Mrs. Which in actuality were. Abruptly, they burst out of the clouds into a shaft of light. Below them, there were still rocks. Above them, the rocks continued to reach up into the sky. But now, though it seemed miles upward, May could see where the mountain at last came to an end. Mrs. Watson continued to climb, her wings straining a little. Meg felt her heart racing. Cold sweat began to gather on her face, and her lips felt as though they were turning blue. She began to gasp. All right, children, use your flowers now, Mrs. Watson said. The atmosphere will continue to get thinner from now on. Hold the flowers up to your face and breathe through them, and they will give you enough oxygen. It won't be as much as you're used to, but it will be enough. Meg had almost forgotten the flowers and was grateful to realize that she was still clasping them, that she hadn't let them fall from her fingers. She pressed her face into the blossoms and breathed deeply. Calvin still held her with one arm, but he too held the flowers to his face. Charles Wallace moved the hand with the flowers slowly, almost as though he were in a dream. Mrs. Watson's wings strained against the thinness of the atmosphere. The summit was only a little way above them, and then they were there. Mrs. Watson came to rest on a small plateau of smooth, silvery rock. There, ahead of them, was a great white disk. One of Uriel's moons, Mrs. Watson told them, her mighty voice faintly breathless. Oh, it's beautiful, Meg cried. It's beautiful. The silver light from the enormous moon poured over them, blending with the golden quality of the day, flowing over the children, over Mrs. Watson, over the mountain peak. Now we will turn around, Mrs. Watson said, and at the quality of her voice, Meg was afraid again. But when they turned, she saw nothing. Ahead of them was the thin, clear blue of sky. Below them, the rocks thrusting out of the shifting sea of white clouds. Now we will wait, Mrs. Watson said, for sunset and moonset. Almost as she spoke, the light began to deepen, to darken. I want to watch the moon set, Charles Wallace said. No, child. Do not turn around, any of you. Face out towards the dark. What I have to show you will be more visible then. Look ahead, straight ahead, as far as you can possibly look. Meg's eyes ached from the strain of looking and seeing nothing. Then, 
Above the clouds which encircled the mountain, she seemed to see a shadow, a faint thing of darkness so far off that she was scarcely sure she was really seeing it. Charles Wallace said, What's that? That sort of shadow out there, Calvin gestured. What is it? I don't like it. Watch, Mrs. Watson commanded. It was a shadow. Nothing but a shadow. It was not even as tangible as a cloud. Was it cast by something, or was it a thing in itself? The sky darkened. The gold left the light, and they were surrounded by blue. Blue deepening until where there had been nothing but the evening sky, there was now a faint pulse of star, and then another, and another, and another. There were more stars than Meg had ever seen before. The atmosphere is so thin here, Mrs. Watson said as though in answer to her unasked question, that it does not obscure your vision as it would at home. Now look, look straight ahead. Meg looked. The dark shadow was still there. It had not lessened or dispersed with the coming of night. And where the shadow was, the stars were not visible. What could there be about a shadow that was so terrible that she knew that there had never been before or ever would be again anything that would chill her with a fear that was beyond shuddering, beyond crying or screaming, beyond the possibility of comfort? Meg's hand holding the blossom slowly dropped and it seemed as though a knife gashed through her lungs. She gasped, but there was no air for her to breathe. Darkness glazed her eyes and mind, but as she started to fall into unconsciousness, her head dropped down into the flowers which she was still clutching, and as she inhaled the fragrance of their purity, her mind and body revived, and she sat up again. The shadow was still there, dark, and dreadful. Calvin held her hand strongly in his, but she felt neither strength nor reassurance in his touch. Beside her, a tremor went through Charles Wallace, but he sat very still. He shouldn't be seeing this, Meg thought. This is too much for so little a boy, no matter how different and extraordinary a little boy. Calvin turned rejecting the dark thing that blotted out the light of the stars. Make it go away, Mrs. Watson, he whispered. Make it go away, it's evil. Slowly, the great creature turned around so that the shadow was behind them, so that they saw only the stars unobscured, the soft throb of starlight on the mountain the descending circle of the great moon swiftly slipping over the horizon. Then, without a word for Mrs. Watson, they were traveling downward, down, down. When they reached the corona of clouds, Mrs. Watson said, You can breathe without the flowers now, my children. Silence again. Not a word. It was as though the shadow had somehow reached out with its dark power and touched them so that they were incapable of speech. When they got back to the flowery field, bathed now in starlight and moonlight from another smaller, yellower rising moon, a little of the tenseness went out of their bodies, 
and they realized that the body of the beautiful creature on which they rode had been as rigid as theirs. With a graceful gesture, it dropped to the ground and folded its great wings. Charles Wallace was the first to slide off. Mrs. Who? Mrs. Witch? he called, and there was an immediate quivering in the air. Mrs. Who's familiar glasses gleamed at them. Mrs. Witch appeared too, but as she had told the children, it was difficult for her to materialize completely, and though there was the robe and peaked hat, Meg could look through them to mountain and stars. She slid off Mrs. Watsit's back and walked, rather unsteadily after the long ride, over to Mrs. Witch. That dark thing we saw, she said. Is that what my father 